You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, the boys invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I am your Uncle Daddy, Joe Stapleton. He is my work wife, James Hardigan. And Joe, I'm very excited about this week's show. There's a lot of good stuff going on, but I'm also quite sad because this will be our last show for some time. It's our season finale, you guys, and guess what? We're not going to fuck it up like Game of Thrones did. Also, hopefully, it's not the series finale, although you never know. Coming up on today's show, the World Series of Poker has begun, which means it's time to let Las Vegas have its time in the sun. For now, we are I did not mean to make that rhyme. That was very lame. Uh, I did play the big <laughs> Fofty, as did nearly every other poker player on the planet. I will give you guys a quick recap of what it was like being at the Rio for this event, as well as some of the hands that went down. Well, one of the hands that went down, at least in fairly good detail, because I wrote it down to tell Maria Ho. Uh, I've got a lot of time coming off this summer. I plan on watching a lot of movies and TV shows. I don't think James has quite as much time off as nope. I do. I have two oh, weeks off this summer. That's pretty good, though. Two, two weeks of absolute. You're good at taking two weeks off, by the way. My two weeks off is me still sort of doing what I normally do. When James is on vacation, he is on vacation. He luckily watches a lot of movies anyway. But anyway, we decided to both uh, watch a poker movie to start off my summer watching binge. We are watching California Split. It's Poker Movie Monday on a Wednesday. Yay! We'll be doing a full-length review of California Split just a little bit later. And Martin... No Sadal. No knows a deal. Knows knows a deal. No, I don't know what how to say this. We'll ask him later. He is this week's super fan, and he will be challenging me to some trivia on said film. Following our recent interviews with Josh Molina, Brian Coppin, but we got another big celebrity guest this week. Very excited. The veteran voice of the Octagon himself, Mr. Bruce Buffer will be joining us to talk UFC and poker. Very excited and, about that. And, and this is important, Joe. This is a PSA. Yeah. Listen to the entire podcast because it's been a while, but we've got details of an exclusive free roll for Poker in the Ears listeners. Excellent. Very good. So, uh, hey, that, that could be anywhere in the show. Make sure you listen to the entire thing for those free roll details. Um Boy, a lot of movies have come out recently, James, and I haven't seen any of them, but I figure we might as well. I'm, I haven't seen John Wick yet. I haven't no. seen, but Rocket Man came out, and I figured we should at least mention Rocket Man and tell people to go see Rocket Man since the director of the movie was on our fucking show. That is true. Those of you who are at the Hippodrome back in September 2017 when we had Dexter Fletcher as our special guest on our 100th episode may remember. If you listen to the show, in fact, you may remember that he hinted that his next project was going to be a film about Elton John. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, about a month after Dexter was on the show, he took over the um, Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. He finished principal photography on that after Brian Singer was fired. He saw that movie through post and then went straight into another musical biopic, I have heard very mixed things about this film. I think it has a very different style to a lot of musical biopics. Some people love it, some people not so much, but I'm still going to watch it. I don't know when, possibly not at the cinema, but yes, uh, Dexter's new movie in cinemas now. 
it feels like the kind of thing from the, my friends' reviews that similar to Bohemian Rhapsody. That if you really like the music and you're very uh, emotionally musically driven in movies, the people I know who are like that have loved the movie. So uh, I, I will definitely check out Rocket Man very soon. James, you've been watching Chernobyl. That seems to be the thing that everyone's talking about right now. I'm going to watch it. I haven't been watching it for two reasons. The first is. I've seen the posters around London. It has the words, a sky original on the poster. And the last TV show I watched, which had that banner was Riviera, which was a pile of shit. I don't even know what that is. Lucky you. Um, (laughs) The other reason, also a pile of shit. The other reason why I've not watched the show is mankind can only take so much reality. And I'm just concerned that it will be so grim and so miserable that it'll just depress me on a nightly basis. That said, I've heard so many good things about it, I can't avoid it any longer. It's clearly a show that I need to watch. So I I watched the first four episodes with my girlfriend, and uh, I was like, all right, should we watch another one? And she's like, there there aren't any more. It's a week-to-week thing. And I was like, what? I was so mad that I couldn't watch the whole thing all at once, and I think it's finished now and this is one of the few shows that we made a pack that we were going to watch together it's too hard with the amount of traveling we both do to watch everything together but i'm waiting for her to get back to finish that i did start on my own since she was gone james yesterday i watched half a season of barry season two and my god do i love this show this is a show that i sort of didn't start watching season two because it's one of those shows that I love so much that I almost don't want to finish it because I'm sad when it's over. And I just watched the episode that Bill Hader directed. Is it the episode? Uh, I saw you tweet. I just watched the 30-minute fight scene, basically. It's basically where he goes to the guy's house, right? Oh, and- my God. Is it good? Yes. It is so good. And I love – people were talking about how great the directing was. And I was like, how can you really – how can you really tell? Like, is it could it be really that different from the rest of the shows? And the way they shoot it, where you're like in the room with them and not quite able to keep up with the action as it's happening, was fucking genius. And it's so funny and so violent. And I just, god damn, it's such a good show. Yeah, it, th- this season I thought was fantastic. I just realized we've got some unfinished business to deal with, Joe, because when we spoke last week, uh, you'd come straight from the Gavin Smith Memorial. Uh, charity event the poker game but you were then preparing for the comedy night how did that go oh man the comedy night was so great it went amazingly i don't know if i mentioned on the show last week or not so i was trying to figure out a way to uh increase sales you know there's only so much you can charge people for a comedy show so we charge twenty dollars for a ticket where we left it was that yeah. you had been offered $500 by yes. Helmuth to roast Todd Brunson, but you'd made Todd an offer that if he wants to kind of trump that bid, you were willing to roast Helmuth instead. Correct. So what ended up happening was Todd just didn't show up. <laughs> so, which uh, ended up being a blessing in disguise because we got the money anyway. I wasn't really going to offer Phil his money back because I don't think he would take it. Todd didn't show up because I was freaking out before the show because I only wrote one good roast joke. Um, obviously, there are things that you can make fun of Todd for that I don't love going to those places, even though it's a roast and it's supposed to be no holds barred. Um, so I was kind of limited in what I could say about him. And I. Two things, obviously, being a person's weight, and I, I just thought making jokes about him not being as good a poker player as Doyle is just kind of 
played. Like, I'd be willing to do one joke in that department, but not like a whole bunch. So I only had one joke written about Todd, but he didn't show up. So I was freaking out. He didn't show up, which was perfect. Uh, we were able to do the show. Every comedian smashed it. Uh, some poker player comedians, Jessica Wellman did, did stand up comedy in front of a live audience or like a real audience for her very first time ever. She was really the standout performance there. I had a couple of friends come out from LA and do the performance for free, including the other guy that opens for Norm McDonald sometimes with me. Really fun night. They sold Gavin's motorcycle. Um, that Gavin had a Harley Davidson that they were trying to get rid of. They sold it for about $5,000, which is way below what a Harley Davidson should be going for. And the woman who bought it, uh, a woman named Marie Lizette, who's worked in the poker industry for years, was so happy that she cried. She was just so thrilled that she got this motorcycle and she was going to give it to her kids. I guess her kids all ride. So it was just a really, really lovely night. The next day, I went to sweat Maria Ho's final table which was awesome. A super good time. Maria finished third, which obviously was slightly disappointing for her, but she did score 350K, took everyone out to dinner and clubbing at Hakkasan afterward. Um, she was overjoyed. There was no disappointment whatsoever with her. She was incredibly grateful and happy. And then they hired her to be a commentator in the WPT a couple of days later because Tony Dunst made a final table. So really great week for Maria. I had a blast. That was where the fun ended for me oh, in cause, Vegas. Because then you paid $500 to play a poker tournament, right? Yes. And I will say this. The Big 50 was awesome. I knew how big it was going to be. So I registered online. I went and got my ticket. They gave me my seat assignment days beforehand. I had the my table and seat number ticket in my hand. I didn't have to wait in any of the lines, any of the stuff you guys heard about. I was prepared. I knew what it was going to be like. I think given how many people played this fucking event, they did a great job. The The lines were inevitable. You can't have 20,000 people. They still don't know the prize pool. It started a week ago. They still don't know what the prize pool is because of all the different flights and how many people that played. Wow. So I commend them. And it was a fantastic experience, James. I, I tweeted this. And I know it's not literally true, but anyone who's ever played poker played this event. And I know there are people from other countries that couldn't make it out, stuff like that. Obviously, James, you didn't make it out. But there were so many people, so many people I hadn't seen in years. So many people were so excited to play this, to do a $500 event at the World Series of Poker to kick things off. I think it was a genius idea. Everyone Everyone was having a blast in this tournament, except for maybe some of the jaded fuck pros who are complaining about it. But it's such good value. It's going to be like a million and a half dollars for first place, even though they I think they guaranteed a million for first. So it was just the perfect way to kick off the World Series of Poker. Joe, I can't help but notice that you are currently talking to me from your home in Los Angeles. You are not in Las <laughs> Vegas and are no longer in the Big 50. Yes, and I know that this doesn't uh, bode well for future staking, but basically, as fun as it was and a great idea as it was, my heart just wasn't in it. I looked at the fact that I played my day one was on Saturday, and I looked at the fact that I wasn't going to cash till near the end of day two, and that wasn't until Monday. I had already been in Vegas for more than a for almost a week, and I was like, you know what? This is really cool and could do a lot for me, but I don't 
really want to spend another five days in Vegas and cash for like and profit. The min cash for most people ended up being seven hundred and fifty dollars. And I thought to myself, I would rather play like a maniac today and run up a huge stack or go broke. Then I would rather then I would play my normal, pretty solid game, which I think you could do in a 50K starting stack, by the way. 50K starting stack, blinds at 100, 200 with a 200 big blind ante, and then min cash or bubble on Monday. And so I just had fun. I splashed around. I did do some things. I was able to practice some things that I normally wouldn't do if I really cared about what was happening. So I made my first ever cold four bet bluff out of the big blind. And it worked. Cool. I had queen three offsuit. And I was like, you know what? I think I was like a raise, a re-raise, two callers. I'm like, I'm just going to make it like 22,000 and see if anybody calls me. Nobody called me. So, um, I got to do that. I wouldn't look if I was playing the main event or if I was playing Bay 101 at five or 10 K, I would never make that move afraid. It wouldn't work. Now I got to try that for the first time. So I did get to play more aggressively. I'll say this, James, I had maybe the softest table in the history of tables. I, I mean, no offense to anyone over this, but I had like two women over 50 and like three or four guys who like were on like a bus trip like their local home game, like put money together for them, come play the big 50. Okay. It was like the softest table ever. Having said that, do not try to bluff those players. Yeah. I, I, I sense a hand history coming, Joe. <laughs> Let's do it. It's a fantastic journey through space and time. It's hand histories. Set the scene for us. All right. The scene is uh, we're pretty early in this event. The blinds have gone up to 100, 300 with a 300 ante. So I think it's like level two. Um, I have about 48,000 out of my 50,000 starting stack. I have ace of diamonds, 10 of hearts in relatively early position. Pre-flop action. So this is a hand that if I'm not playing at breakneck speed, I might actually just fold uh, from relatively early position. I don't. I don't love it. I don't like playing many hands at all from early, especially at a full table. My table filled up at this point. We started probably six-handed. Now I think we're eight or nine-handed even. Um, But because I'm looking to accumulate chips or go home, I decide to raise to 800. I get three callers, the button, the small blind, and the big blind. The flop. King of diamonds, 10 of diamonds, jack of diamonds. I don't know why I just read it out of order, but I have three cards to a royal flush plus a pair of tens. I've got so many outs, and I might have the best hand. So what do you do? I bet 1300 and the button does not look very happy. He seems a little pained with his decision, but eventually he calls the small and big blinds fold. The turn. The turn is the nine of clubs. Not a very good card for me. No, it puts a four card straight out there. Now losing to any queen. You've still got a ton of equity, though. I I can't think that a pair of tens is good. I guess you're still on a draw. Yeah, exactly. But I'm happy to semi-bluff again in this spot, especially given that my opponent didn't look super happy 
uh, facing the the flop bet. So I at this point decide to bet twenty seven hundred. Okay. Again, the button does not look very happy. He's even more pained this time. But eventually he calls the river. The river is just the card we were looking for. The five of clubs. Always a brick. Oh God. Um, I say that. But there's a very good chance that he's on a draw as well. He could have a straight draw. He could have a flush draw. Maybe that's why he's not happy about calling bets on the flop and turn. Exactly. And I think at the very least, he's got some kind of... Uh, he's, I thought he probably had some kind of pair, like top pair or bottom pair or something. And I, But I know either way, I can't check this. I have to continue bluffing here. There's, I think if I check, I lose 100% of the time. I can't check call. Right. But to clarify, and, you're not bet- betting a pair of 10s for value here. You think you're behind, and that that's why you're betting. I have to bluff. I have to turn a pair of 10s into a bluff here. If if he bets, I have to fold. If he checks, I'm going to lose at showdown like 100% of the time. So I bet 7,700. Okay. He tanks for quite a while, and it's the first time that I actually have a hard time sitting still while someone's in the tank. I, I don't know what to do. I'm fidgety. Like I want to. I have my hands flat on the table, but I can feel the muscles in my fingers wanting to clench my fists. I don't know why. I'm really freaking out. He tanks for a really long time, and eventually Psy calls, which for a second when he Psy calls, I'm like, maybe i'm good no. i mean he might cycle with a king he might even cycle with a jack but he's not cycling with anything worse than a pair of tens joey well technically <laughs> for a while it was worse than a pair of tens he had pocket nines yeah there was a nine on the turn if memory serves me correctly and that's Correct. a set. There was a nine on the turn and i guess I... he's worried about the four cards straight right and that's why he's cycling the river with a set Exactly. And I came to realize that there's only two words that this kind of player understands, and that's all in. (laughs) If I had moved all in on that river, I think he folds. But for 7,700 and 50,000 in starting chips, it's just really, really hard to get someone to fold a set there. Um, I don't like. I don't, I don't dislike where your head's at, though, because I, I'm afraid my my mantra on the river there is I I figure I have a little bit of showdown value. I'm beating his miss straight and flush draws, so I'm probably just gonna check and hope that he checks behind. Um, and if he bets, I'm folding, which is probably the incorrect way of looking at it. So I, I salute you for actually taking a stab at it at the river. In a in a vacuum, I'd like it. In an overall sort of picture of this tournament, I think it's dumb. First of all, that I should have just folded Ace Ten uh, in early position at that stage of the tournament, and I think that uh, in the overall, with that many starting chips, people are going to be really sticky. Yeah. And so I think that, like I said, in a vacuum, I think that hand works, or against a certain type of player, that hand works. But against a recreational player who also, you know, I don't know he has a set. It's really hard to get people to fold sets, obviously, even on four-card four straight boards. Um, having said that, I'll talk about this a little bit later. That might not be the last tournament I play, but just I, I was I wanted to get home. To, I missed my girlfriend. I missed L.A. I'd have been in Vegas for like six days already. You know what it's like. Well, you've talked for the last three months about being on the road. I think everyone can sympathize with the fact that you just wanted to get home and spend some time on your couch. We get it. 
Um, yes, and I had no backers in this. I was 100% playing with my money, right. and so I figured I can do what I want. And I almost honestly just unregistered. I came really close to unregistering, and the only reason I didn't was my girlfriend said, I'm busy all day Saturday. Go play the tournament. If you do, great, great. If not, come home Saturday night, and that's what I did. Cool. Uh, well, the World Series is now in full swing. Um, it will conclude with the main event, I guess, during the first couple of weeks of July. Wait, guess what, James? It doesn't conclude with the main event. No? There's like four events after the main event, including an event called The Closer, and then there's another event. Oh, wow. But it, it, it does end in <laughs> mid-July, right? It doesn't run into August this year. I don't think it's in August yet, but okay. who knows? Um, coincidentally, our guest on this week's podcast has had a few World Series of Poker caches over the years. Um, he is a poker player but he's not a poker pro because like us, Joe, he talks for a living or rather he kind of shouts for a living because he is the official UFC announcer. He is the veteran voice of the octagon. We are thrilled to welcome to poker in the ears, Bruce Buffer. How are you, Bruce? You know, I'm doing fantastic. I just got back from Europe. I was over in Stockholm last weekend doing the UFC and um, was in uh, the UK recently also too. And there's a whole bunch of international shows coming up. So, just getting in the mood to uh, become another UFC road warrior. When you're overseas doing that stuff and working, I assume that you do more than introduce the things that are happening. What what else goes on that we might not see? Well, you know, basically there's preparation involved. I mean, the commentators like John Anik, and he's got to prepare for talking for six or eight hours, you know, depending how long we're there. For me, I have to introduce each fight. There's probably takes me about two hours before I get on the plane to go where I'm going to pre-prepare my cards. And then once I'm there, I have about another hour to two hours of work after they weigh in and any other additions that have been made. Plus there's media, sometimes personal appearances, nightclub appearances, um, other types of appearances. So usually with all the shows, I'm coming in, let's say the show's on a Saturday and it's domestic. I'm coming in on a Friday and I'm leaving very early Sunday because normally I get back. I got four days at home, take care of all the other businesses, family, friends, you know, everything else. And then I'm on the road again the following Friday. So it's uh, it's not a grind. It's an absolute pleasure, but it's very busy. It sounds similar to poker commentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're listen, let's face it, guys, no matter how long the show, you're the ones doing the talking, you know, if you're commentating. And people have people don't really realize what goes into commentating. I mean, they they see my announcing, and they you know I hopefully get them all excited, get them jacked up, and everything else. I've always got a lot of respect for the commentators looking down on the sideline. I get to go back and sit in my seat and watch the fights, which they do too, but they cannot stop talking. The last time we saw you, Bruce, was in the Bahamas at the PSPC, and you got the event off to an amazing start in your trademark style. But I could tell, meeting you at the party the night before and standing with you on stage, more than anything else, you were just so excited about actually playing poker. I could tell, here is a guy who loves the game. Absolutely love the game. My dad taught me how to play poker uh, when I was nine years old, along with blackjack and horse racing. And uh, I got really good at blackjack. I never got good at horse racing because he told me the only way to follow a horse is with a shovel. Don't bet on him. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I it was actually very sane advice when you think about it. Although I do enjoy a nice day at the track with a girlfriend, it's always a lot of fun. You know, for me, it's like once every year or two, but it's always you know always fun. But poker, I love poker because I've always been very competitive. Whether it's surfing, fighting, martial arts, all the things I've done in my life, um, I need that competitive edge. And being older now and not standing toe to toe and throwing punches or surfing the big waves like I used to, um, although I still love to get in the water, of course. When I can take chips from somebody, when I can 
qualify, you know, for the uh, cat, you know, cash in a tournament. Have a great night at a at a cash game like I did in uh, Stockholm this last trip last weekend against the locals. You know, it it just fills my competitive edge. I mean, the money being made, hopefully, is definitely always a joy. It's the best. Listen, let's face it, guys. When you win money, that is the best money to spend in the world. There's no better <laughs> money to spend than the money you win when you're game when you're gaming. But I just love the whole skill factor. I love the mental aspects. And quite frankly, when you think about it, the mental similarities between poker and life, poker and fighting, they're very similar. Knowing when to be offensive, when to be defensive, when to make your move, when to put it all on the line where you're going to take the man for all the chips or they're going to knock you out of the table. You know, it's life's choices. I, I love poker, gentlemen. I truly love it. Do you get the same thrill from competing at poker that you would through fighting or surfing or is it a little bit less adrenaline? Well, it's definitely a little bit less adrenaline. I mean, unless you're, you know, suddenly you won a tournament, which I've had the pleasure of doing <clears throat> a few times in my life, you know, for a few titles and stuff. Not WSOP. I still have yet to conquer that one. But, um, no, the thrill is there. But, you know, you're taking off on a 10-foot wave on North Shore Hawaii at Sunset Beach. Um, when you practically, you know, feel your balls in your throat, shall we say, <laughs> that's a little bit different. I never had quite had that feeling at the poker table, <laughs> but I have had some incredible feelings at the poker table, the adrenaline rush, um, the self-satisfaction, uh, it's definitely there. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. And my dad taught me one thing too. He said, win like you're used to it and lose like it doesn't bother you. But when you lose, it always bothers you a little bit, but you got to be able to shake it off. Don't carry it, learn from it and move on. I'm interested in how you got to where you are now, Bruce, because many people will know you as the announcer inside the octagon, but many people may not know that you yourself were once a fighter. Well, I've been in uh, martial arts since I was 12. My first art was judo, and I was in Philadelphia. Then I moved to Malibu at 15 with my family, which was like culture shock from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Malibu. Yeah, that's that's what the surf. Well, you know, when I got to Malibu, I I never saw blonde girls like that. I never saw surfing like that. It's like it was just a revelation. It was just a, a complete culture shock. And obviously, I wanted to learn how to surf, and I I did. I became Baywatch before Baywatch was ever made on TV. One of my friends was actually the tech advisor on the show, and I started living the Point Break Malibu surfer lifestyle, which was really great. You know, and it was very tough out here because it's very territorial, and martial arts was very big in Malibu. As a matter of fact. My first foray into it, I became friends with one of Chuck Norris's fighting partners who was um, named Bobby Burbage, who was teaching out of Malibu. And two of my friends were two of his black belts. And I started training, you know, multiple times a week. And I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I got my black belt. I'm a second degree in, tong in Tongsudo, which is the uh, a sister style to or brother style to Taekwondo. And Tongsudo, Tongsudo is the original style that Chuck Norris learned in the Air Force. So I started training with them, training with some of his fighting partners, really got into it. And then I wanted to fight for real because I'd had a lot of, you know, altercations on the beach and the street, you know, like most kids growing up, or maybe not like most kids, maybe a little more than most. And um, then I got into the world of kickboxing because if I was going to train and I was going to spar or fight, I wanted the chance to either uh, knock the individual out standing in front of me or, God forbid, get knocked out myself. Is, um, I'm sorry, is your life based on the karate kid or vice that, versa? No, you know, let me tell you something. My dad was in the Marines for 13 years, served in World War II in Korea. And I would walk in a room when I was like six years old, and my dad would say, I'd say, hi, Dad. He said, son, project your voice. Let them know you're in the room. That was probably my first step towards, you know, 
managing and learning how to work my voice. But he also told me street fighting techniques and everything else before I went to school because he said, look, you're going to get picked on. They're going to try to take your lunch money. Let me tell you what to do. They come behind you, stomp the foot. They come in front of you, punch them right in the nose. I mean, I was learning all this stuff. And I remember the first time I got grabbed in school from behind, I, I picked my foot up and I stomped it right on the kid's instep and the kid started crying and broke the, <sighs> broke the hold. And I told myself, I'm going to listen to every damn thing my father tells me from now on. Most definitely. And I had the kind of dad who was a mix of John Wayne, Errol Flynn, and Steve McQueen all rolled into one, whether it was, he was a professional gambler too at one point when he got out of the Marines. Um, that's where my gaming comes from. And, uh, you know, he basically just taught me how to go through life, taught me what to be prepared for. So what happened to the kickboxing career? Well, I, I wanted to have one pro fight. And uh, I had connections here at the LA Forum, which was having Monday night fights, and they would have three-round kickboxing fights. And I had a chance to go for one of those, and I was training, and I got concussed twice during my training, which um, probably is the two times the doctor knows of, but I'm sure I was concussed more through training. I've only been knocked out a couple times, one in a fight, one not in a fight. And, um, but I think I've probably been concussed more than that. I think all of us are not aware, if we're into sports, how often we're concussed when the brain gets rattled. So the doctor basically said, no, don't. No fighting. You're 32 years old. Do you make money at this? I go, no, I make plenty of money doing my work. I just do this because I love it and I love to bang. So he said, stop. Just stop. The, the problems you're having right now, the, the headaches, the slurring of the speech, things that are occurring because of your concussion you just had are going to go on and be steady when you're 45 if you keep this up. So I, I, I stopped at that point. I never got to fulfill that one bucket list of having one fight saying I had one pro fight. But I had enough goes. I have nothing left to prove. And I love kickboxing. Love Muay Thai. Did you envisage at that stage, though, that you were going to have a career in this world, that fighting was still going to be part of your life, a very important part of your life? Well, it always was because I, my grandfather in the history books is named Johnny Buff, and he was the Bantamweight Flyweight Champion of the World in 1921. And um, right out of the womb, the womb, rather, my dad had me watching, my brother Brian, we were watching boxing. My brother Michael, the great legendary Let's Get Ready to Rumble announcer, whom, uh, you know, he's my half-brother, and we had the same father. We did not grow up together. The brother I grew up with was Brian Buffer. I did not meet my brother Michael until I was 29, give or take, years old. And four years later, I became his manager, and the rest is pretty well written in, you know, history, what we've done together uh, with the phrase and his amazing career. Um, it's crazy to me that you have a situation where two brothers, one is like oh, becomes the yes, voice yes. of boxing, and one becomes the voice of the UFC. Is it just coincidence, or was it planned that way? Well, here's what happened, basically. I love boxing, as I was saying. I met Muhammad Ali when I was five years old, when I met him at a hotel in Philadelphia, and he spent five to ten minutes talking to my brother Brian and I, but at that time, his name was Cassius Clay. That had a huge impression on me, and then watching him fight on TV forever. Um, and then, of course, the foray into martial arts and enjoying the you know, the uh, pugilistic sports as much as I did on my own personal level. Then, in the late 80s, when Tyson got popular and all the boxing was happening, out comes this, you know, handsome, debonair, James Bond-looking character saying, let's get ready to rumble, and I'm becoming a big fan, but I had a problem because on the screen, they chironed his name on the screen, and it said Michael Buffer. Now, that's threw me for a looper, right? And I didn't really think we looked alike, uh, maybe a little bit, but... <laughs> You know, it kind of little struck me. And I own telemarketing companies. I wrote about this in my book, It's Time, which was my biography was published by Crown Books Random House about seven years ago. 
and I go into great detail about this, but when I saw him on the screen and saw that, it, it started to dawn on me, who is this guy? Because in the telemarketing companies I owned, this was pre-internet. One of the things humans do as, you know, a habit, you look in a phone book to see if your last name is in the phone book. Well, I saw every phone book in the United States. I never saw my name Buffer in any phone book. So when he appears on the screen with the name Buffer, I'm like, what the heck is this? So I started calling Don King's offices, Bob Arum's offices, finding out much as I could about this man. Turns out he grew up like 20 miles or more away from me where I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, there were similarities that seemed similar but did not seem similar. And then people are coming up on the street and they're saying, hey, is that your brother, the guy that goes, let's get ready to rumble? And I said, no, my, name, my brother's Brian. I, I'm not sure who this guy is. So after about a year plus of this, I'm driving with my father and I'm telling him all that I just told you. And I'm like, dad, do you have any idea who this guy is? And he turns to me and he goes, I think that's your brother. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He didn't tell me. He was married to my mom for 57 years before, you know, my dad, God love him, passed 10 years ago. Um, but he never told me that when he was 20 during World War II, before he went overseas, he got married. And the marriage lasted nine months. And a son was born. And uh, then he was put up for adoption. And my dad, the last time he saw him was like when he was two and a half. It was just one of those stories, right? Yeah. So, so they reunited. Um, long story cut short, and it turned out to be his son. He called him once when he was in L.A. doing a fight. They got together for lunch. Then we all got together, and then I started traveling to Vegas on my business trips, going to the fights, watching Michael do his thing. And I had an epiphany in 1992, November 13th. It was during the first Riddick Bowe Evander Holyfield fight, those great fights that they had, the two fights that they had. I was at the first one. <clears throat> and watching everybody going nuts when Michael went into his rumble, from Hulk Hogan to Jack Nicholson, you name it, Instead of going out and, you know, uh, hitting the clubs and playing, you know, blackjack and all the stuff I like to do in Vegas at the time, I went back to my room and I couldn't control myself. I incessantly started writing down pages of notes of trademark this phrase, you know, make the clothes, make the T-shirts, uh, take him and uh, expand his career out of the boxing ring into the NBA courts, the football fields, the soccer fields, the movies, TV, video games. And I met with Michael and I said, Michael, I, I just have this great idea and I want to become your manager and your partner. And he, I said, this is what I'll do. I'll sell the two companies I have now. I was doing great. I was very successful in what I was doing, but I was what we call burned out at that point. I had no passion for what I was doing. So I decided to sell off the two companies, give up everything I had, quit with the money on the bank to become his manager and his partner. And he said, how are you going to do all this stuff? And I said, I really don't know, but if I'm going to give all this up, I'll figure it out. Now, that was 27 or so years ago. And we, I also told him I wanted to be an announcer, and we agreed that I would not do boxing. A, there's no money in it. He was the only one making any real money. B, it would be a confliction of interest. And C, I was cool with that because I just wanted to you know, make him richer and more famous than he ever dreamed and hopefully myself in the process. But I did say, you know what, something will come along. When that comes along, then I'm going to go for it. Right. So, so when the UFC came along, which was my world, I understood that fighting. I've done that fighting. I understand everything about it. it just It just clicked with me. And I thought this is going to be the biggest thing ever in sports, right? And I had actually sparred Horace Gracie in 1991, two years before the UFC came out. I had his dojo in Torrance where he took me down underneath my punches in 45 uh, seconds and started uh, putting me in a side choke, choking me out. It goes tap, tap, tap. So I tap, and I'll never forget when he got up in the guard and he looks at me and straightens out his gi and he says, see, isn't it nice not to get hit in the face? And <laughs> And then when he came out of UFC one, I told my family and friends watching, go watch that skinny kid. He's going to beat all these guys up. Watch, it's going to happen. You know, and he was against a bunch of behemoths. So now I got Michael in. I got a contract for him as I approached every new business coming out 
to hire him to be the announcer. So he did UFC 6-7 and Ultimate Ultimate. But at the time, we had a huge contract with WCW Wrestling. And when he came out in the octagon that first night and said, if it's not in the octagon, it's not real, I knew exactly what was going to happen. And the phone rang on Monday, and it was WCW getting on my case about why I put Michael in the UFC. And I said, well, he's allowed to per his contract, and we have a three-fight deal. And they said, well, basically, you have a decision to make. It's either UFC or it's WCW. And WCW was paying him a huge amount of money back then. They were, like, just so big. So we fulfilled the UFC contract, and then I tried to convince the UFC owners that they needed a buffer in the octagon. I had a lot of media contacts they did not have. Nobody was giving him any attention. People were scared of the name, Ultimate Fighting Championship, on and on and on. All the stuff you guys know from past history. So I spent about a year, you know, I, I would go to New York. I'd try to get him out for drinks. You know, ask for the job. That's what you got to do. You got to go for the job. So a behemoth named uh, Scott the Pitbull Ferrazzo out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, sent me a VHS tape of him fighting. And this guy was the kind of monster back then, like Tank Abbott, that they wanted in the UFC. So I got him in the UFC as his manager. And part of the deal was they fly you with your fighter wherever the event is. So I went to buy him on Puerto Rico, February 16th, 1996, with my fighter. I had a tuxedo in the bag purposely. And I cornered the uh, owner at the party the night before the show. And I said, look, Robert, I've got the tuxedo in the bag. I'm going to ask you, let me announce the prelim, show you what I got. You need me to be part of this, right? So he let me announce it. I did. They never called me back. Um, six months later, I got a call. Could I be in Dothan, Alabama in two days to announce UFC 8, or 10 rather, in full? And um, I said, great. And I went down there. I announced it. I thought they'd hire me. No, they hired somebody else. Now I'm like, really, what am I going to do now? Because I really want this job. Then they call me about six months later and say, hey, we're doing Friends, the second season, episode 23. It's called The Ultimate Fighting Champion with John Favreau and Tank Abbott and Big John McCarthy and there's a voiceover of an announcer, but they would rather have the real announcer, and they want to come to your house and pick up tape and video and see if they want you for the show. So they came over on a Monday. They called me at 5.30 that night. They said, listen, you got the job. Be on the set at 6 in the morning tomorrow, and we, and we film all day Wednesday. You're going to co-star as yourself on Friends. So I took this as fuel for fodder to corner the, the owner again, Robert Meyerowitz. I called him up. I said, we need to have lunch together. We met. And I, it just went like this, guys. I said, Robert, I feel like a girl at high school waiting to be asked to the prom. I keep asking and asking and asking. You know what I can do. You know my business acumen. But I want to grow as the announcer, the octagon announcer, and then I can provide the other stuff because I think this is going to be the biggest thing in sports. Best poker hand I ever played. I said, let's just make a deal or I'm never asking you again. I'm just co-starring on the biggest comedy on TV now and I'm going to be recognized as your announcer. Um it's time for you to make a decision. I was really firm about it, and it was the best I, poker hand. Best poker that's hand. That's incredible. I, I mean, that's that's amazing that you wanted this job and you got to do it one time, and then somehow friends put you on TV as having that job. And since you were already the guy on Friends who had the job, then you eventually got the job. Like that's crazy. That's you know making use of what you got, my friend. That's what <laughs> Some, you have to do. Sometimes life is, is crazy, and obviously the career took off. Uh, from there, Bruce, and you then became the veteran voice of the Octagon. And when they put the word veteran in your job title, you know you've been doing it a long time. 23 plus years, gentlemen. February 16th of this year is my 23rd year. I think I'm the longest standing um, participant, especially on camera, the UFC's had out of anybody these days, which I take great pride in. If you don't mind, I know people in show business don't like to talk about their age, but I'm really impressed that you had this whole other life and then you switched careers. And I was wondering if you could say like at what age you did that, because I think that a lot of people often think it's too late. 
Uh, I'm too old. I got to stick with what I'm doing. It's a big gamble. So can you talk a little bit about did did it feel risky? Did it feel like you're taking a chance? Um, everything is a chance, but I come from the, you know, my, my basic instinct is to take a chance, you know, whether you call it no pain, no gain, you know, takes money to make money, whatever the term you want to use is, but you got to take a shot. If you believe in yourself, I live life by a theory of BSC, which stands for ball skill and confidence. And if I'm lacking any one of those three attributes, when I'm going to sit down at a table, much less make a decision in work life or real life, then I'm coming from a point of weakness. I always try to come from a point of strength. So I started when I first announced I was probably in the area of about 36 years old. So that is an age where most people, you know, there are some people walking around, they don't know what they want to do. Now, I'm not saying I didn't know what I wanted to do because I had my first company at 19. I always went for it. I always made good money. But I believe the key thing in life is to follow your passion. So if you can find something you're passionate about, take that and monetize it by turning it into uh, something that you're earning money from as a lifestyle, then you're not working. You're living a lifestyle of something you love to do. I don't go to work. I live my life. I wake up every day and I'm lucky enough to be the voice of the octagon. I, I, I wake up very humbly and kiss the ground and you know thank everybody for my position every day because I don't take anything for granted. And that way I stay hungry. And every night I walk in that octagon, to me it's the first night I need to prove to myself as well as the people I work for, as well as the fantastic, amazing fans watching and the fighters I'm trying to enhance at that moment, I have to prove every night I walk out there that I'm worthy of that. And I have the same attitude I had at USC 8 when I walked out and buy them on Puerto Rico today. And that's what keeps me That's what keeps me moving. I don't take things for granted. I work for them. You talk about passions, Bruce, and obviously you're a huge UFC fan as well as working in the sport. You're a huge poker fan as well and a poker player, and your Hender mob results speak for themselves. You know, numerous caches at the World Series, WPT, and other events across North America. So it must have been a thrill for you, for poker stars and the UFC to form a partnership, and you suddenly have the chance to do more in the poker sphere as well as bringing these two great things in your life together. It's amazing. You know, it's a bucket list, It's um, and the people at pokers know, Poker Stars know how I feel. I love this. I When I made this deal with Poker Stars, I was very ecstatic. I think it's a great deal for both of us. I will do everything I can to enhance everything they want me to enhance. I think their partnership with the UFC is groundbreaking. It's going to be great for Poker Stars because when you think about the demographic of the average UFC fan, you know, the 18 to 34 fan, of which in America over 75% of men, men 18 to 34 fans of the UFC, this is the same demographic that plays poker as well as the outside demographics. I think it's a match made in heaven. And the idea of going to the Bahamas, you know, with the, with the style in which Poker Stars treats us as ambassadors and players, and to go there and to excite everybody and get the thing started, and then to sit down, uh, you know, at a $25,000 entry tournament with a chance to win $5 million. I mean, I, I love this, and I have trips coming up, and I'm capable, as everybody's capable. That's the beauty of poker. Anybody can win on any given day, just like in the octagon. Anybody can win on any given day. That's mixed martial arts. So I can't wait to cash a title, much less to break into the final table or be in the top 20 of these great tournaments. There's a lot of money to be made, but you know what? There's a lot of fun to be had. So now that you are officially a PokerStars UFC ambassador, do you know what your schedule is for the rest of the year? Do you know what events you might be playing? Well, I'm going over that right now with PokerStars, and, and I haven't made a final decision yet. But the one that I'm working on going to is the Barcelona event in August. That should be my next one. Cool. 
Yeah, and I do plan on getting over to the World Series, hopefully, and um, I only have literally like a week from now. I've got one week to play, and there's a $3,000 six-man tournament. I want to try and go for a bracelet over there, so I'm probably going to shoot over there on June 12th. And I have one final question, Bruce, which is how do you perform a buffer 360 without falling over? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first off, I only did it once, but I could still do it today if I wanted to. I'm even at 62, which I just turned last week, I'm still capable of pulling off all those moves and more. Um, but I've blown two ACLs working with the UFC, and I'm living with no ACL on my left leg, although I'm very strong and I can you know, still do a ton of athletics and move, but I don't, I'm tired of rehab, guys. <laughs> so no more airborne 360. But when I did that that night at UFC 100, I was up in my room, okay? And I never rehearsed. I never rehearsed announcing. I never rehearsed my moves. I want to be completely organic and go out there and perform like some of the great rock stars that I've seen in the past, you know, when they just getting the caught up in the moment. I always, I always respected that moment when I would see that. I'm not saying I'm a rock star. I don't mean that, but you know, just looking at the way people command the stage. Um, I practiced that move, the 360. I did it three times in my hotel room before I walked down to the arena and I slipped twice on the carpet and I thought, Oh my God, uh Oh, what's going to happen here? But then when I turned around the, uh, from introducing Frank Mir and walked over to Brock Lesnar, that monster, I talked myself, if I don't, if I don't do the 360 right now, it's been a buildup for six or eight months. Rogan's over there having a heart attack, wondering if I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the bitch of the internet on Monday if I don't do this right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I better pull this thing off. And and it just came off perfectly. It's and and then Joe and I talked about it afterwards, and I already had it in my head, but we both agreed never do it again. Keep it the one time, and that's when that's where people take note of it. And I'm I'm proud of that. It's a I don't know what what announcer jumps up to a 360 in front of 20,000 people in a tuxedo and street shoes. I mean, that was kind of like a little nuts on my part. To be but honest anyway. with you, I don't know how you do the 180s, the 90s, and the 45s without falling over, but then I have no sense of balance. So, Well, when I blew my ACL announcing George St. Pierre uh, fighting Jake Shields in front of 55,000 people at Toronto, the biggest shoes seen in the history of the UFC, the good thing is when I blew the ACL, oh, I got to tell you the story, guys, but, but I'll tell you real quick. When I blew the ACL, I didn't fall. Okay, that was the good part. But the reason I blew my first ACL in the octagon was because a week before, I was at Hustler Casino in California here playing a poker tournament. And during a break, I took a walk and I hit a dip in the carpet and rolled my ankle. Right? When I rolled my ankle, I couldn't walk. The next morning, I woke up with a swollen ankle. I went to the hospital. They drew a ton of blood out of it. I go back to day two, the final day of this tournament, on crutches, right, to play. This is a week before the big UFC, the next Saturday. I wound up getting third and winning 30000 The cash is right there on, on the hand of mob or car player, wherever you're looking at. So then now I can't walk. And it's Thursday before the Saturday before I leave on Friday for Toronto, Canada. And I still can't walk. I just start to walk on like Thursday night. Then adrenaline takes over. I'm in the octagon. The show went perfectly. I jumped. I turned. I did everything. And at the very last main event, which is George St. Pierre and Jake Shields, I'm introducing George, and like always, I go, George, rush. And he lunges out like he always does, and I bunny hop back a foot and a half or so like I always do with George, and I bunny hop back, and the bad ankle wobbled when it landed, and my knee exploded. And it was like, George, rush, say Pierre! Because <laughs> of the pain coming out of my, my <laughs> knee. <laughs> it was probably the loudest say Pierre I ever gave George in my lifetime. And here's the funny part. So I... So now I hobble over, my knee's going back and forth, I got my face on, my arms underneath the referee Herb Dean, and I'm looking in the camera with my, you know, octagon face. But inside I'm like, oh my God, I think I just blew my knee. 
And then I would come out, I, I jump out of the octagon on one leg, you know, with my leg up. You can see it in the film. And Big John McCarthy comes over to me and says, Buff, I think you just blew your ACL. And then the cut man stitch hands me a bag of ice on my knee. So I'm watching the main event. I'm an announcer. I get the bag of ice on my knee. What is wrong with that picture? That's just wrong. <laughs> so then, so three months later, I'm in rehab because I didn't get operated on. I had a movie to make and eight shows in a row. So I just had a special brace made and lived without the ACL going to all these shows. I went and got operated on. And I had to go to rehab because you got like three, six, nine months of rehab with that. And who winds up in rehab with me two months later but George St. Pierre who blew his ACL. <laughs> he blew his ACL like two months later in training. We both wind up getting operated on by the same doctor and we wind up in rehab together. And I blew my ACL announcing him. That's kind of weird. It's Again, kind that's of a glitch in the matrix. For yeah. sure. <laughs> I was just thinking throughout that story, Bruce. Joe. I, I don't think anyone's ever injured themselves doing poker commentary. I consider ourselves lucky that there is no physical work involved in what we do. People have threatened to punch me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when Phil Helmuth goes on a crying spat, you never know what he's going to do. But, I you know, I love Phil. He's a really cool guy. But if you're acted to be like he did at the World Series a few years back, berating that one guy, somebody's going to get slapped on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I feel we've scratched the surface and we probably only heard about 1% of the stories that you have from your life. Um, look forward to seeing you at EPT Barcelona in August and catching up more then. It's going to be great. And I have something I'd like to offer the poker fans, if I may. Please. Um, at my website, brucebuffer.com, for a few years now, I've made championship introductions, very inexpensive. I get partial proceeds to children, military, and animal charities. But if you go to brucebuffer.com and you want a, an audio or video introduction of you being announced like you're a champion in the cage, um, I do these. I do a ton of them every month. The orders fly in. And I really love it because the fans get a big kick out of it. I love the thank you notes. Plus, I do weddings and birthdays and birth of babies. And, of course podcast introductions so it's all at brucebuffer.com that's my one little push but i love doing this because where are you going to get it where are you going to get introduced like you're the champion of the octagon that's really you know? fun bruce thank it's you cool. very much for your time and we will see you on the ept in barcelona in august i i can't wait let's get there sangria for everybody boys see you there Well, by my calculations, it's been 12 months since we did a Movie Monday on a Wednesday, Joe. Wow. It's actually this time last year that we talked about The Gambler, the James Caan movie, which also happens to be from 1974. It was made the same year as California Split. And in a way, I wish we talked about these two movies together, or at least back-to-back -back weeks, because they're very similar in the sense that not only were they made at the same time, but they cover very similar themes. The idea of gambling addiction, the idea of that rush, the idea of that pull to the table games, to the track. But they treat that subject matter very differently. I think it's fair to say that this movie has a much lighter tone, even though it has some dark moments. Yeah, I actually felt like the movies were, were very similar feeling. I actually thought this one was uh, more realistic, even though the, the players win more. Uh, I, I really do think that the 
I found a lot about the gambler to be realistic. I do. I did feel like a lot of it was just like a little bit too far. The sickness was a little bit over over dramatic, especially the ending, right? Especially the ending of the guy being like, "Come on, cut me" or whatever. Yeah. That weird ending was this one. Other than the ending of the fact that they end up just scoring huge, I found this to be very realistic. I identified so much with so many of the things that happened in this movie, even as so far as like the guy's living arrangement, Charlie's living arrangement with the two girls. There was so much about this that reminded me of my life. Before we get into detail, before we start unpacking some of those things in the film, like Charlie's domestic situation. Yeah. um, I have owned this film on DVD for nearly 20 years now, but I've only ever watched it once. And in wanting to revisit the movie and watch it for a second time, knowing that you were going to watch it for the first time, I went to iTunes to download it. I don't know whether you, yeah. where you found it in the end, Joe. I bought it off iTunes, yeah. Right. And I will read you the exact email that I wrote to the iTunes store Uh-oh. after watching California <laughs> Split in digital format. The video is advertised as widescreen in the iTunes store, implying that it is presented in its original scope aspect ratio of 2.35 to 1. However, after the opening credits, which are in the correct ratio, the picture switches to 1.77 to 1, 69, <laughs> losing information to the far left and far right of frame. I have never come across this before since the advent of DVD and certainly in the era of Ultra HD, 4K digital, every film has been presented in its original aspect ratio with black borders if necessary. I thought the age of pan and scan was long gone. This is unacceptable. I am pleased to say that iTunes issued me with a refund for £7.99. I was very disappointed that this movie was not in its original scope ratio. I'm not saying it completely ruined my enjoyment of it, but I did not know that this still happened in this modern day and age that you could get films that had still been cropped or panned and scanned. So uh, I'm trying to think of if I just didn't notice if it was panned and scanned for me or if I just didn't get a pan and scan version somehow, being that sometimes you know the stores are different between the UK and the American that store. It's very possible. But as I said, it didn't ruin my enjoyment. I still like this film. Joe, what did you think seeing it for the first time? I loved this movie. I loved it. There were things about it that I didn't like, um, and that's just uh, Altman. Uh, I, I love Robert Altman, and a lot of the time uh, his whole sort of um, – fly on the wall way of capturing things and just letting all of the background noise bleed through and not really focusing, you know, sometimes you're watching action from across the room and listening to it from across the room. And I like that a lot of the time in this movie, I found it a little bit more distracting than usual and difficult to follow what was going on. I did put the subtitles on for this movie, Yeah, I don't which, which I think is sort of cheating. Like if you have to do that, like I, Robert Altman does that for a reason, right? So I found myself going, is this cheating? Does he want me to miss some of this? Does he want me to not understand some of what's going on here? Yeah, and I guess age, so. I mean, this this movie was made before that was an option to of turn course. subtitles on. Of course, and you're absolutely right. It's classic Altman, the overlapping dialogue. But there are so many good lines in this, you don't want to miss any of them. So I completely understand that mindset in flicking on the subtitles. Yeah, and so um, I... I really, really like this movie. I was ready to cringe over the uh, the transvestite sort of John 
escort scene and i was like oh god here they are this is gonna be like a really shameful thing they're gonna make this guy feel terrible and they go the exact opposite with it and unlike a lot of the movies that we watch of the day and age there weren't weren't a ton of like cringy moments like oh this didn't age well some of it yes of course was inevitable but i just found the two characters to be very likable unlike uh in the gambler where james Conn, where you're sort of even rooting against him because he fucks over so many people in his life um these guys it, this manages to to show the the dirty side of gambling and the sort of the consequences of it without being so just awful and horrific and that's clearly a combination of two things it's the writing but it's also the performances the casting of george siegel and elliot gould and it's clear that some of the time these guys are improvising and bringing a lot yes more that's what i want to, to ask table. you is that there's a ton of improvising in this movie it seems like um in the gambling scenes, in their interactions together, it really felt like uh, there, there was a, an actual camaraderie between them as well. Well, Joe, let's take it from the top, because yeah. this film has you hooked from the opening scene. And what is incredible about this movie, just to put it into perspective, it's 45 years old, and yet everyone who has ever played in any poker room anywhere in the world will instantly recognize the environment that you find yourself in taking in the California club, the waiting list for tables, players being called to their seats, the floor supervisor making a ruling, the ridiculous tutorial video running in the lobby, the characters at the table, the old woman Miriam whining about how slow the table is playing, Lou the bad loser, the awesome moment that George Siegel's character, after being punched, is groggily just making sure that he's picking up all of his chips from the floor and the table. It just feels so real and it feels so modern. It really did. I was like, oh, my God, they could have shot this in the commerce last week uh, if not if not for the, the chalkboard. Right. That's yeah. about the only difference. The chalkboard and the tables are pretty flimsy. Also, it's kind of funny that uh, in this card club, they're self-dealing. Um, they're, they're passing the deal to one another. But I mean, it lo- like also kind of sad, probably, that the commerce hasn't really changed over the years now i don't know if that's where they shot it or not but it feels exactly like a california card room it was crazy and what i like is that we find ourselves questioning in that first scene whether lou is right whether there is some form of collusion or some cheating going on between elliot gould and george siegel they're the two leads in the movie they're the two main characters and we don't know coming into this film if they have a prior relationship and it's only in the following scene where they meet at the bar that we realize oh it was just a coincidence they don't know each other this is their first meeting and this is to quote Casablanca, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. And I really like how they sort of, um, how they portray how a friendship between two straight adult males, uh, would develop in that day and age. Granted, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up then. I don't know how people went and made friends, but this seems about as realistic a portrayal to me as how two strangers can meet and become buddies as any other. Yeah, and how one guy is clearly a, a professional gambler slash hustler. The other one is clearly has got a problem, but is lured into his world. Um, the one thing that did bother me about this film, and I don't remember this from the first time I saw it, is I do find Charlie's domestic situation to be uncomfortable. Is he a pimp? Is he just sharing a house with two prostitutes? And the fact that one of the girls, Susan, is clearly traumatized by what she does for a living, just it felt it jarred me slightly in 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 the context of an otherwise happy-go-lucky movie 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, my read on the situation was that he just has two roommates who are escorts because he doesn't seem to exact any control over them. He doesn't seem they seem to be friends, have a friend relationship, not a a boss or pimp uh, escort relationship. It, it, it is obviously a little jarring and sad when Susan comes home and she's upset. But uh, I, I also if you notice what she's upset about is not that the guy mistreated her is that she liked him is that she like kind of fell for him. So again, it has this opportunity to be super dark, but it doesn't go there. It's actually just shows like, Oh, this is a human being and she has real feelings. Um, And I also think that that sort of that relationship too plays really well into the whole gambler mindset that you know that love is temporary also just like money like all these things like easy come easy go um yeah i really loved that aspect of the movie and again um it didn't portray that profession as dirty and as dark as it could have been it was like no these are two pretty normal people who aren't bad girls aren't evil people they just happen to charge people to go out to dinner with them and maybe some other stuff but they don't really get into that yeah and as i referenced even though this is a comedy it does have moments of darkness or hint at dark themes and that's not bad nuance is not a negative thing um when bill george siegel's character then goes to work the next day we get this wonderful brief moment of a young jeff goldblum so weird because his name is listed in the credits and i think sometimes they just do that to help sell the movie because he obviously has like two and a half lines of dialogue in the movie. Um, Yes. And you're not really sure what's going through his head at first when he goes to work. And then eventually you're like, Oh my God, he just like, he's going to skip out of work. Like he is just going to go. And again, I don't know if this is, you know, obviously that when you're skipping out of work to go gamble, that's a problem. But when you're skipping out of work because you have three friends who you want to just go hang out with and you know, they're having tons of fun without you that you can relate to, a little bit more and everyone in their life has a friend like Charlie, right? Like everyone's got that one friend who just sort of gets by somehow lives by the seat of their pants and sort of wants to pull you into their world. Although I didn't necessarily see it as wanting to hang out with his friend. I definitely saw it as DJ's going to DJ. You saw it as a DJ thing. No, he's going to make it down to the track because he needs that rush. And he, I think he's, it's the allure of Charlie's lifestyle. The guy doesn't have a job. He's just either at the track, at the casino, always hustling, always looking to make a dollar. And I think that uh, that's what's drawing him into his world. I, the the track scene was the only time I sort of despised any of the main characters in this movie when he tells the woman not to bet the horse. Um, other than being interesting for the movie, I don't know what purpose it really served to keep her away from it i could understand um not spreading the word and not giving the tip to a bunch of other people but i didn't understand why necessarily he had to ruin that woman's day by telling her not to bet it yeah we get a bit more poker back at the card club in california the game at nuji's ugh which is just the one scene that i really love i don't know if we've skipped it chronologically or not is after they're leaving the boxing match um and they get robbed for the second time yes and elliot gould's like no no he's like i'm not giving you all my money you can have half take it or leave it and it seems like a very reasonable offer and in that moment i found myself wondering what would i do it's a really fucked up version of deal or no deal at gunpoint 
Right, and I could see myself doing that same thing, being like, "You're not ruining my entire night. Like, kill me or kill me or don't." But here's half the money, and the guy obviously. And what I like is there's a little bit of humanity in the robber as well. And as we know, people who generally people who are thieves are doing it out of necessity. They're doing it out of desperation. They're not doing it because they're bad people. So I really liked this scene where the guy's like, "You know what? Cool. I don't want to kill anybody either." Let's call let's call it halves and they managed to salvage the night. I yeah. love that. I think my single favorite scene in this entire film is the first time they get mugged is after they take Lou for pretty much all of his money. Lou, the yeah. bad loser, who is convinced that they're cheating and then attacks them outside the bar and gets his money. And then, of course, Elliot Gould spots him at the track, follows him in the bathroom to extract his revenge. And at that point, Lou turns around and breaks his nose. And you just don't see it coming. You think, oh, this is the chance where he's going to get him back. But actually, like Lou has the upper hand on him and just floors him. Yeah, I, that was another thing that I kind of like in this world where they live in where people just get beaten up and their money stolen and that's it. Like there's no security. There's no one. No. Like basically Lou just like eventually is like, okay, cool. You got me like, haha, we're even now. And I'm like, um, geez, this is a cutthroat world that they live in. Yeah. Um, the big difference between the gambler and this movie is that James Caan went to Vegas for his winning streak. These guys go to Reno and we have the poker game in Reno with Amarillo fucking slim. I had forgotten this guy pops up in this movie. Dude, the Amarillo slim cameo, no offense to any of the other poker movies that we know and love is a better cameo by a poker player than any other movie better than Johnny Chan and rounders better than um, whatever the fuck happened in deal. Um, Amarillo Slim, look, probably a piece of shit in real life, right? But he is very charismatic in this role. He is a good actor. You totally, you, he doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, like a lot of these poker player cameos do. I loved seeing him in this, and it reminded me that in his day, Amarillo Slim was like the first star. Yeah the first gambling star he was on the tonight show all the time he really was a celebrity he got it weird glitch in the matrix there's a scene where i forget which character says you know like one of spraggy's catchphrases is you love to hear it you hate to hear it you love this somebody says you love to hear it and then immediately they cut to a shot of an exterior at reno literally right where I broke up the fight when I was with Spraggy. That's so weird. It was a very bizarre, very bizarre glitch in the Matrix. And I absolutely love my favorite scene in this entire movie is where the two of them are sitting and watching the poker game oh, and they decide to size up all, all the, players. the players. My favorite one is the guy, what about the Chinaman? And it turns out he's actually Hawaiian. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and that actually is a perfect metaphor for the fact that we all go do that. And we, it doesn't matter if we're right or we're wrong. We make those same assumptions, those same little backstories for everybody. And that is what we use to influence our decisions at the tables. And most of the time we're wrong, but we're there, especially with your degenerate friend, right? And you're just enabling yeah. each other. I mean, and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
again, to, to, to highlight the moments of, of darkness, in inverted commas, before they go to Reno, like George Siegel has to sell all of his shit to raise money to put together a bankroll. He's stone cold broke and he owes his bookie a, a lot of money. And he sells his typewriter, which is very significant because he's a writer. It's like he's selling his profession almost right. in order to go and do this. Um, and they're in for like 1100 each and he's sitting down in this high stakes poker game. And... It's really weird because you've already referenced the fact, Joe, they come out winners. And the whole final sequence from the winning session, the poker game, running it up to $11,000 and then running up to $18,000 and then playing blackjack and running it up, roulette running it up. And that the crap sequence is genuinely exciting to watch because anyone who's ever been at a craps table in Nevada, when someone's having a winning session and everyone's on and everyone's behind the shooter, there is, it, there's a buzz unlike any other you will experience in any game in any casino. And they end up cashing out for $82,000, which I think I, I think I did the IMDb had the calculation. It's about half a million dollars in, in today's money. Oh, wow. And yet, it doesn't feel like a win. And that's what I found interesting about this movie is no one's really celebrating. No one's really happy. And when they walk, when they part at the end, when Bill walks away, you just get the impression that he's never going to see Charlie ever again. Yeah, for sure. And that I, I didn't really see other than the fact that it's like a buddy gambling movie. I didn't see a ton of comparisons between this and Mississippi Grind. Uh, but in that moment, I did. In that moment, I did where they went, and what I liked about this above the gambler also is that if not gambling wise, at least friendship wise, when it comes to toxic friendships and having toxic people in your life, it seems like they learned their lesson or at least one of them did. At least uh, Bill did. Yeah. Um, now, look, we know how gripping gambling can be. So I don't want to say in my mind, I don't think he ever gambles again, but I do think he understands that this was he came dangerously close to ruining his life here. And uh, at the very least, yes, I agree that he's not going to see Charlie again. What I, what I noticed also about Altman here that I don't know if I loved it or not is that he doesn't really do drama in the traditional sense of like the way he shoots things. He doesn't shoot them dramatically. You know, there wasn't like it's observation. What's it? Yes, it's you're just sort of there. There's no like slowing down of the action. There's no close ups. There's no music there. I mean, there might be these things, but not in the traditional sense of like, what's he going to roll here? Oh, my God. Here we go again. It's just we're rolling and he hits it. He doesn't cut to the dice. He doesn't cut to he really just sort of uh, all happens in the moment. And. In doing that, I do think it is a little bit more realistic, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, what's happening? Ah, it's going so fast. Yeah, yeah. And you don't really see any hands at the poker game. In fact, we're kind of in um, Charlie's position. We're in Elliot Gould's position. We're the ones sitting on the rail, and Bill makes him go away. It's like, get out of the room. You're taking me off my game. And he's just getting updates like every hour or so as to what where the bankroll's at. Um, and the one, the one thing I'll give them credit for is this, is you can't fuck up the poker. Yeah. If you do it like that. But what they get right, and this extends from the very first scene, which we've already talked about, right through to the game in Reno, is the dialogue and the atmosphere feels real. And that's more important than any actual cards and any hands that you're going to see. Um, one one thing that did tilt me beyond belief is, how do they not color them up at the end of that crap session? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're like pouring chips into a glass bowl 
to take to the cashier. It's like, come on, I can't believe that you don't have some high denomination chips at that table. Yeah, I don't know if it's um, if it's a sign of the times or just something they did specifically for the movie, because obviously grabbing all the chips and throwing them into the bowl is looks better than them clicking off eight 10K chips and yeah. handing them to them. Uh, but I agree with you, Joe, in the sense that this film is very much an inspiration for Mississippi Grind, and Mississippi Grind kind of uses it as a, as a springboard to do something completely original. Um, but I think this film holds up incredibly well. It's only the second time I've seen it. I'm glad I saw it again. And uh, like many other Robert Altman movies of that era, uh, from MASH to Nashville, I, I think it's a classic, and I think it's uh, it's well worth your time if you haven't already seen it if you didn't do your homework that we set you last week and we haven't just ruined it with the spoilers that we've been dropping over the course of the last 20 minutes yeah i really recommend this movie i like i said i think it holds up totally and it was a really fun watch if you guys didn't watch it uh give give it a shot at some point over the summer well let's find out what this week's super fan thought of california split one of them loves the ept knows it inside out and would do anything for the European Poker Tour. The other one is Joe Stapleton. It's Superfan versus Stapes. And we are doing something that goes against my nature. We're giving someone a second chance. <laughs> Please welcome to Poker in the Ears from the United States of America, Martin Nosedal. Hi there, Martin. Hello, Hardigan and Stapes. Thank you for giving me a second chance. Yes, Martin. I know that this is low-hanging fruit, but I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty scared about being quizzed against a guy named Knows It All. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've heard that one before. Yeah, I know you have, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's very relevant in this case. Hey, what the fuck happened last time? <laughs> um, yeah, th- we're taping at a decent time this time. Last time it was, uh, I think it was a three a.m. Uh, taping and i said to myself all right i'll stay up i'll watch some stuff and i made it till i don't know maybe 2 15 and nodded off on the couch and woke up to a lot of angry uh, dms from poker stars uh, <laughs> twitter account so yeah. thank you for having me back on i appreciate it you see martin a true super fan will get up at any hour of the day but i do appreciate <laughs> that was a bit ridiculous that was casino royale which was another one of our movie mondays on a Wednesday from a couple of years ago. So here we are two years later talking about California Split. Had you seen the movie before or was this your first time viewing it? I had not seen it before. I had heard of it as being one of the poker movies that was actually good and had had it on my list of things to see and had a flight, had to fly to and from New York this weekend. So I thought perfect opportunity to finally watch this movie. And what did you think? I thought it was pretty good. I think the I was surprised by how much of the poker lingo was up to date if you know what i mean yeah uh joe and i've just been talking about the movie in detail and we both agree that it stood the test of time remarkably well all all of the poker scenes feel very modern yeah um so what is your deal bro what do you do outside of listening to this podcast Uh, i am a public school teacher i teach uh, music specifically i teach orchestra Cool. Wow, that's great. That's so important. I'm. Uh, I, I know in this day and age, it's it's one of those programs that's usually the first thing to go is music. I'm glad you're still in a place where that happens. Uh, do you teach in a place where they still hand out instruments to the kids that want to play that kind of thing? 
I'm in the, the north suburbs here in Chicago, which is a mix of rich kids and not so rich kids. So earlier today, I was collecting all of the scholarship instruments that we use, which number in the many dozens. So we're lucky here. That's really cool. Any? Uh, do you have any prodigies? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got some we've got some little like nine and ten year olds who have been playing since they were three, and uh, you know, if they play their cards right, maybe they'll be able to make a living at it one day. I, I'm I'm like picturing the California split version of this, James, where uh, where Martin, you know, sort of quits being a teacher to become a manager, to be like, <laughs> ah, I got to take it right to the top, kid. <laughs> Uh, Martin, hearing about what you do for a living, I'm so glad that we did give you a second chance. Uh, being in the United States of America, in a state where online poker is not a thing, we can't give you the opportunity to win an EPT Barcelona satellite ticket. However, there is PokerStars merchandise that we could be sending across the Atlantic should you be successful. I have to warn you, this quiz was not outsourced to Patrick the Intern. It's a Hartigan quiz. Uh-oh. But, uh, yeah, so so we've got knows it all and also hard again so this quiz will be hard again yes it will and uh that said having as you've both watched the movie in the last few days i'm pretty sure it will be an even closely fought contest i'm very excited about this there are 10 questions all multiple choice there are plenty of bonus questions as well because i made so many notes when i watched this film uh martin you are our super fan you are our guest you can go first please give me a number between one and ten all right i'll go seven Question number seven. Which sports team does Charlie encourage Bill to bet his house on? Uh, uh, the Lakers. The Lakers is correct for two points. Would you have known okay. that one, Joe? Yes, I would have. But, I, I, but I, I'm not going to freak out yet because I think I might know several of these. I'm going to mix things up and go with question number three. Question number three. What's the name of the horse that Charlie bets on at the track? It is... Something femme. What is the first word? Something electric. Femme. I'm gonna have to take the choices. God damn it! Is it Belgian princess, Egyptian femme, African star, or English lady? Egyptian femme. Correct for one point. The good news is, Joe, there is a bonus question here. Uh, by the all way, right. I, I just mentioned Martin that the fact that they don't color him up at the end and he's got all those chips in a glass bowl kind of tilted me. The American pronunciation of the word "fam" is the other thing <laughs> that utterly annoyed me about this movie. Uh, Joe, the bonus question: What is the name of the jockey riding Egyptian femme? It is a Hispanic name. I want to say Valdez. You would be correct. You get the bonus point, and we have a tied game after the first round. Martin, your second question. You can take anything but three or seven. Uh, I'll go number two. Number two. What nickname does Bill have for his boss? Ooh. Uh, I guess I'll have to take the choices. Is it the Don, the Duke, the Dauphin, or the Dingus? Man, this is tough. I guess I'll go the Don. Incorrect. It was the Dauphin, as played by Jeff Goldblum. That one I, I knew, but only because I watched it with subtitles on. I think that had I watched <laughs> it with the subtitles off, I might not have picked up on what the fuck he was saying. Joe, what question would you like next? Uh, what's the, the lowest available? One? Number one is available. Okay, let's take it. At the bar, towards the beginning of the movie, Charlie claims he can name all seven dwarfs. Which one does he name first? Doc. 
Correct for two points. And there is a bonus question. Aside from Snow White, which Disney animated classic is frequently referenced by Bill and Charlie? Oh, that's a good question. What other Disney movies? Uh, I'm just going to... I'm going to say... Oh, Dumbo. Correct for that bonus point. And Joe, you have a 5-2 lead. Come on, Martin. Let's get you back in the game. 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, or 10. Uh, I'll go number four. Number four. Which of Barbara and Susan's clients is paying them $150 just for dinner? Hmm... I guess I'll have to go choices. Is it Mr. Clark, Mr. Kirkwood, Mr. Keller, or Mr. Kramer? Uh, Mr. Clark? It was Mr. Kramer, but there is a bonus question. What's the name of Mr. Kramer's alter ego? Oh, I, I don't remember it. Joe, you can steal for a point. Helen. Correct. Oh, yeah. Joe, you have a 6-2 lead, and it's your question. 5, 6, 8, 9, or 10. Uh, let's go with my lucky number nine. Number nine. When Bill is playing blackjack in Reno, which song is being performed by the pianist? When he's playing blackjack, you're nobody till somebody loves you. You're going to go for it? You're not going to take the options? I'm going for it. You are incorrect, which means, Martin, you can steal, and you can always take the options if you wish. Is it Georgia on my mind? It is for two points. Congratulations. Uh, but, Joe, you get the bonus question here. Which candy bar does Charlie try to wager with? Uh, Milky Way. Correct for a bonus point. Okay, Martin, it's your question. Uh, I'll go lowest possible. Uh, which is question number five. How much money does Charlie have on him when he's mugged for the second time? Uh, crap. Remember, there are multiple choice options available. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll take multiple choice. Is it $950? $1,270, $1,580, or $1,860? Crap, I'll go $1,580. Is correct for a point, and the bonus question is, how much does he offer the mugger as a settlement? Uh, half of $1,580. $1,580, it's not quite half. It's, it's uh, I need the exact amount he offers. Uh, uh, $780. 780 is correct, and you're now only one point behind. Oh, man, I would have gotten that one wrong. I would have said 750. Nice. <laughs> okay, Joe, you can have 6, 8, or 10. Oh, man. Let's go, let's go at 10. Question number 10. How many consecutive 11s does Bill roll at the craps table in Reno? I'll take the choices. 4, 5, 6, or 7. Seven. It was four. There is a bonus question, though. Bill's winning streak ends when a woman bets on seven. How much does she bet? A dollar. Correct. So you do get the bonus <laughs> points. Uh, you are only two points behind, Martin. We're heading into the final round. You can have question six or question eight. I'll take question six. Question six. What's the name of Bill's bookie? Uh, another name question. Uh... <laughs> Uh, he's got he's got over 45 students in a crowded classroom that, whose names he has to remember james you expect him to remember the name of a bookie from a movie uh hold on the guy uh with the who calls everybody babe um and i can tell you that, that later in the movie elliot gould pranks bill by knocking on his door pretending to be this guy or at least to work for him 
Yeah. Um, I guess I'll take the que the options. Is it sizzle, sparky, slasher, or sauce? Oh crap! Uh, I guess I'll go with the third one. Slasher was evident. It was sparky. Now, it's not over, because you could still steal Joe's question if he does not know the answer. Question eight, Joe. After getting angry with the bartender at the track, what drink does Lou order? An old-fashioned. Incorrect. So, Martin, you can steal here, and you can go for it for two points, or you can take the options for one point. I guess I need the two points, huh? You need two points to tie the game. Could you give me that question one more time? After getting angry with the bartender at the track, what drink does Lou order? Uh, it's a, a straight shot. I don't remember what, but it's a straight I'm shot. I'm going to give it to you. It's a straight scotch. I will give you two points there, <laughs> which means it comes down to the bonus question, which goes to Joe. So, Joe, if you get this co correct, you yeah. win Superfan versus Stapes. Which fruit right. gets thrown at Bill and Charlie on the escalator? A tangerine. Is correct for one point. <laughs> you don't throw oranges on an escalator is the line. And Joe, by a margin of one, you have won this week's edition of Superfan vs. Stapes. But don't worry, Martin. We will still send you something in a package well, in the post. Well done, Stapes. And that was an awesome quiz, Hardigan. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, it Martin, for being available this time, coming on the show and taking part. Hey Martin, thanks for being on the show, and also thanks for uh, thanks for your service. I feel like we don't thank teachers enough, man. That's fantastic. I hope uh, I hope you're bringing a lot of light and joy to these kids. Thanks for having me on, guys. Keep up the great work. All right, my babies, we're almost out of time for this week's show, which means we're almost it's almost time to say goodbye for the summer. I love the fact that we close out this season of the podcast with you finally scoring a win in a super fan <laughs> quiz, Joe. Um, before we go, we are heading into the lobby because, as you may have heard, the Sunday Storm is celebrating its eighth anniversary uh, in just over a week's time on Sunday the 16th of June. The Sunday Storm is an $11 buy-in and for its eighth anniversary, there's going to be a guaranteed prize pool of $1 million dollars by the way, people were calling the Big 50 the live version of the Sunday Storm. So if you guys weren't <laughs> able to make it out there for that and you want to get a taste of what it was like, hop on board because that's going to be huge. So this coming Sunday, which is the 9th of June, we're running a Poker in the Ears free roll and we're awarding Sunday Storm anniversary tickets. So we're going to have a prize pool of 495 that's 45 $11 tickets. And the free roll starts on Sunday the 9th of June at 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 7.20 p.m. in the UK, 8.20 p.m. in Central Europe. And remember, the standard poker in the ears free roll rules apply. It's only going to appear in the lobby about 15 minutes before it starts when registration opens. There will be no late registration, so you've got a very small window to get into this game. You'll find it in the lobby by searching for kicking up a storm. That's what we're calling the free roll. And the password is Halle Berry because she plays Storm in the X-Men movies. Uh, so that is all one word, all lowercase. Cute. H-A-L-L-E. B-E-R-R-Y. Kicking up a storm is the name of the free roll. Uh, Halle Berry is the password. 
And by the way, if you're going to kick up a storm about how you didn't get into this free roll in time or you didn't spell the password right, guess what? We're not going to be able to answer you <laughs> until like fucking September. So see you in September. Okay. This is the point where I have to kind of say, yes, that's lovely, right. Joe. But for the sake of factual accuracy, we're actually going to be back in August. So what? It's like a month and a half or something? More than two months. More than two months off, James, first of all. Promise me we won't go two and a half months without actually. It doesn't have to be this long of a chat. No, but we got to ca- we got to catch up. We will catch some, up, Joe. We will catch some, up before the next episode drops on Thursday the 15th of August. Uh, so during the summer break, please keep offering your suggestions for guests. Submit your application for Superfan versus Stapes. Please include your specialist subject of choice. Doesn't have to be a movie, by the way. Um it's a little harder to make the questions if it's something super obscure, but it's been a while since we've had a fishing or a bowling a, a bridges. Did someone do bridges <laughs> or bodies of water once? Whatever. Please, whatever you guys want to do, hashtag it poker in the air is also one other thing I want to hear from you guys about. Because really, you your guys' opinion and you guys um, sort of encouraging me to do this will be the only reason that I do this. Should I play the main event? at the World Series of Poker. I'm really on the fence about it. Um, Obviously, the money is a consideration. I will sell most of my action, uh, probably at least 60% of it. Uh, I'm a little trepidatious about it. But if I know it's something that the audience will enjoy and participate in and wants to be a part of, uh, I'll be more likely to do it. So use the hashtag poker in the ears if you guys think I should play the main event at the World Series of Poker. Until then, subscribe, like, comment. Please get one of your friends who likes poker to listen to the show over the summer. We will shout them out when we come back in August. However, until then, for James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later.